Welcome back to our third in a four-part series about the making of modern Israel. And welcome those of you online and those of you here. You'll notice that you have a handout tonight. That's great. Ashley's back. Everything works now. She is the work. I'm telling you, she's the workhorse around here. She does everything. Uh, really appreciate her. She's a great ministry partner. Uh, this is a really formative part of the lesson. This little piece of history we're going to talk about now really sets the stage for modern, modern Israel today. So I'm excited to get into it, but let's say a prayer and we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you so much for the mercies you've shown to us. We appreciate the freedoms we have to come learn about your word, to learn what you have done throughout history. And I pray, Lord, it will build our faith to know that you have been trustworthy, that you indeed have been sovereign, that you have bent all of reality to your will and that we are safe in your hands. And I pray that you would increase our faith that as we look forward into the unknown, that the past might give us confidence that you are with us. Father, I pray for all those who are grieving. I pray particularly for the family of the officer in Edmond this week, that you would comfort them, that your, just your supernatural peace would be with them. Father, I pray for all in the hearing of my voice who need healing, those, Father, who are anxious, those who are facing difficulties. And Father, we also pray for those who are rejoicing that we might all turn to you and give praise to you and get our comfort from you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's the number you can text your questions to during class. Sometimes they come in a little late through the system and we don't get to answer them all, but text them in again if, if you had one last week. I think I'm gonna pick up a couple of the questions that came in last week in the course of this lesson, but we'd love to answer your questions, so uh, please, please text those in during the class. So we are talking about the making of modern Israel, and we started with kind of the arc of Jewish history, if you will, and we moved all the way through World War I in our first lesson to get us into the 20th century. Then we focused in our last lesson on 1948, so post-World War II, the uh, creation of a Jewish state. And if you remember, I won't go back through all of it, but basically the area on this particular map in blue is the area where Jews were living and the, basically the UN proposed plan, roughly, these aren't exactly right, but this is close, is that the areas in blue would be a Jewish state. The area in white on the west bank of the Jordan, I'm just highlighting the Jordan River so you can see the west bank, the area in white, that that would be for the Palestinians, meaning the people that were living there who were uh, Jordanian citizens. And this is Jordan over here. So they were Jordanian citizens, but that that could be a place for the people who lived in Palestine during the British mandate. And so the people who were living in that land, they were Jordanian citizens, but they could have their own identity. They could be an Arab state in this area of Palestine. The Jews accepted that. Arabs did not accept that. And so when the Jews declared their independence, the establishment of a Jewish state, David Ben-Gurion, the first Jewish prime minister on May 14, 1948, declared that the, uh, this blue area was an, a state of Israel, a nation of Israel. And then on the next day, on May 15th, uh, this picture just shows you the various Arab armies that invaded. And so I do wanna make one note here, I'm a little out of order, but 
This blue area of Israel, as long as we're on this map, this is what is referred to today as pre-1967 borders, or the 1967 borders. Okay, we're gonna go to that war in a minute. In other words, the people that are saying today that Israel needs to withdraw to the 1967 borders means this area in blue right here would be the nation of Israel. I'll show you what it looks like today. It's bigger than that today. But when you hear the 67 borders, this is what they're talking about. This, by the way, is indefensible. I mean, as a nation, it is impossible to defend this nation, even though they were successful in this war of independence and beat back these five Arab armies. I mean, it's, it's literally miraculous. In modern technology, you literally, the reason that Israel is resisting this idea, I'm just giving you their point of view, I'm gonna give you the Palestinian point of view too, but the Israeli point of view is, this would be very difficult because you can't militarily defend that area. So you would need very, very strong guarantees from your neighbors that you wouldn't be invaded. Uh, but in 1948, they were able to hold it off and it was a miraculous uh, war and that they were able to secure those borders. From the Arab world's point of view, whether it's uh, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, Saudis sent some troops as well. They thought it was called Al-Nakba, the great catastrophe, that Arab, all these Arab armies were pushed back by ragtag Jewish army. So that's what happened in the War of Independence in 1948. And so, from 1948 all the way to 1967, this is the way the Middle East looked. And so you have this area here, and you can tell, by the way, this is an Israeli map, or it's a map of someone who's sympathetic, because this West Bank in green is labeled Samaria and Judea. That's what the Jews call that area, because in the Bible, that's Samaria and Judea. In New Testament times, that was the name of those two areas. When Jesus was there, it was called Samaria and Judea. Now, from the Arabs call it uh, Palestine, basically, but it's the West Bank. So when you hear about the West Bank, it is on the West Bank of the Jordan River. Jordan River runs right here from the Sea of Galilee in the north down to the Dead Sea. And so this is Jordan and it's the east bank of the Jordan River. And on the west bank, which it's called the West Bank, or it's called Palestine, or it's called occupied territory, and you'll understand why that is later. From 1949 until 1967, all the people that, I wanna tell you, who are the Palestinians? Well, they are the people who lived in that green area that's labeled on this map, Samaria and Judea, and they are the people that some of them were displaced from the areas that are Israel when the Israel state was established. Some of them were displaced out of there. Some of them had been living in that area. And they have come to be known as the Palestinian people. At this time, they were actually citizens of Jordan. So they were Jordanians. Now, what is their ethnicity? Remember, I told you there are three things we want to talk about. Ethnicity which is, I'm gonna use a rough definition of identifiable genetic groups of people. Like you can identify the genetic material of the Jewish people, that's an ethnicity, okay? So 
ethnically very mixed. Uh, there were some Egyptians living there, there's Syrians living there, there's some Iraqis living there, a lot of Jordanians living there, some Saudi Arabians living there, but Arab, Arabic people, okay, that were living in that area ethnically. Religiously, they were Muslims. I mean, almost, almost all of them were Muslims. Some of them were Christian, almost all were Muslim. And then nationally, they really didn't have a national identity because the people that lived there from World War I to World War II were under the British mandate, meaning Britain kind of ran the government of the country, but the people just kind of went about their lives, right? And now, after World War II, they were given Jordanian citizenship. And so, for example, there were people from that region, Palestinians, who were sitting in the Jordanian parliament. So they were Jordanian citizens, whether or not they thought of themselves as Jordanians per se, but they've been kind of moved around, right, from the British mandate to citizens of Jordan. So from 49 to 67, the people that lived in that area were ethnically Arabic and Jordanian citizens. So the king of Jordan, so we're gonna move now, I wanna talk about from uh, after World War II all the way to 67, there's a big war then and a big war in 73. Those two things define what Israel looks like today. It is gonna define the territorial boundaries and it's gonna explain a lot of why the UN, uh, of, of the UN resolutions that are passed to condemn people in the world, every year they pass hundreds of resolutions condemning various nations for doing various things. Almost all of them condemn Israel for something, and I'll tell you why that is uh, now. So, first of all, let's talk about some of the leaders at this time. This is King Hussein of Jordan. Took he took over Jordan as a very young man. So you can see in 52, he ruled till 99 when he died of cancer. He was ruling Jordan. And from all the way up to 1967, you have the Arab countries, so Egypt, Jordan, it's still called Transjordan at that time, but it's Jordan, Syria, Lebanon. The Arab world's been humiliated that their armies could not destroy the Jews. I mean, their goal was literally to do away with the Jewish nation, to kill all the Jews, okay? I mean, that's, that was their aim militarily. This is not your land, get out, and we're going to drive you into the sea. And they failed, and so it was a huge blow to Arab pride, if you will. So in the West Bank, I'm just gonna call that uh, green area there, the West Bank, there began to be terroristic activities against Israel. In other words, if you can't win the battle, there was still the hatred of Israel and the you shouldn't be here. And so various groups came up. They came up because of their religion Islam versus Judaism, but also just because of, hey, we're Palestinians, the world said you guys could have this state, we never said you could have this state. This actually belongs to us through our forefather, Abraham, and not you. And so they began to do a lot of terrorist activities. This became a big problem for King Hussein of Jordan because Israel would retaliate. And so they would attack villages in the West Bank every time somebody did a suicide bomb or killed a soldier or did something like that. So you have all this terroristic activity. No, not open war, but terrorism happening. The problem with that is every time Israel would respond, the people in Palestine would say, we're Jordanian citizens, why aren't you protecting us? And the whole Arab world would say, yeah, King Hussein, what's the matter with you? Well, Hussein, 
has, has a real problem on his hands in that he doesn't, obviously the whole Arab world couldn't defeat Israel in 48. He's certainly not ready to take them on on his own. And so he's really caught between a rock and a hard place. And he's having a hard time holding on to his throne because some of the other Arab nations really would kind of like to get a foot into uh, Jordan. And particularly the leader of Egypt would be happy to take over Jordan. So you've got a lot of things going on here. The Israeli prime minister, and we're gonna go all the way up to the 67 war, so he was prime minister in the 67 war. He was the one trying to manage this responses to terrorism. And so he and King Hussein actually had a good secret relationship. Hussein realized the Arabs weren't strong enough in 48 to destroy the Jews. We're not strong enough now to destroy the Jews. I got all these Palestinian people who are now Jordanian citizens and they're mad at me because I won't go destroy the Jews. So he had an interest in keeping the peace there. So he was secretly talking to the Israeli prime minister and they were trying to find a way, because the Israelis don't want war either, to keep things calm. They did a really good job for about 19 years and that's, that's about as good as it got. And so King Hussein had trouble on his hands. Prime Minister Eshkol also had trouble on his hands. The big shaker and mover during this time, all the way up to the 67 war is uh, Gamal Nasser. And he was the uh, president of Egypt. Egypt was the most prosperous, the most militarily powerful. And he had this idea that the whole Arab world would come together and unite itself, and he was willing to be the guy in charge. And so Nasser was very influential. He played the political games very well with the British. He played the British off against the uh, Russians. Remember, what else is happening in this time period? Cold War, United States and Britain versus uh, Soviet Union. And so he did a really good job of playing off his relationship with Britain and America with the Russians. And so the Russians won out and gave him a lot of military equipment. And he's thinking, we're gonna build our military, we're gonna build the Arab world, we're gonna destroy those pesky Jews, and then we really are gonna have a united Arab group, a sense of solidarity, ethnic solidarity, okay? So he was very charismatic, had huge influence on the whole Arab world during this time. And one of the big things in the Arab world was to avenge the humiliation of Arab defeat in 1948. You cannot underestimate how much that drove the thinking in all of the Arab world during that time period. So Abdel Nasser is uh, basically trying to pull everybody together. He was giving Hussein a hard time and in fact, Hussein's throne was a little bit shaky in this time period. He got Hussein, King Hussein, to agree to let uh, Egyptian generals control the Jordanian army. So he really was pulling people under his umbrella. Hussein is just, he, his whole career was lived on the knife edge. He had his own people, the Palestinians, trying to kill him and overthrow the throne. He had some religious zealots trying to overthrow his throne. The Iraqis also wanted to put one of his cousins on his throne, and Nasser wanted to rule them as a vassal state. So I want you to understand, it's not as cut and dried as Arabs versus Israelis. There's an awful lot of complexity going on here. 
So that's what's happening. So as you lead up to the 1967 war, here's what's happening. So Israel is in the blue. This area in the white, the, I'll either call it the West Bank or I'll call it uh, Palestine, uh, which is what it's called today. That area is Jordanian territory. You see it on the map. They start moving troops in. The Egyptians start moving troops in. Well, what are you gonna do? It's legal, it's their territory. And so Egypt moves massive amounts of troops all along the border with Israel. Lebanon moves troops all along the border. Syria moves troops along the border. And then the Egyptians send some of their army. They command the Jordanian army and they move them all the way into Jerusalem because at this point, Jerusalem is in the West Bank and it's Jordanian. As a matter of fact, this whole time from 1948, the establishment of the Jewish state until 1967, Jews couldn't pray at the Western Wall. Jews couldn't do much in Jerusalem because Jordan controlled Jerusalem as well. So they had a state, but they didn't really have their holy places. But look how close you can get all of these armies. Who orchestrated this? Nasser. He was kind of the head of the whole Arab alliance and he said, look, we failed in 48, but I'm here now. We're all gonna get together. We're gonna bring all our troops right onto the border. There's no way the Israelis can possibly defend. We now have Soviet weaponry. We now have better tanks. We now have more ammunition. We've made a deal with the Soviets. So this is what's happening geopolitically. And so finally, 19 years later, it's like, Okay, we're gonna avenge the 48 defeat and we're gonna wipe out the nation of Israel. So they get their armies right up on the border. Well, for the Israelis, this is an existential question, meaning they're literally all going to be killed. If they lose the battle, it's not just a pride issue, they cease to exist. And so needless to say, at this point in time, Believe it or not, America is not supplying most of the arms to Israel. Uh, America, uh, Lyndon Johnson's president at that time, and is supportive of Eshkol, the prime minister of Israel, but is not the primary driver. He's got bigger problems of his own. Lyndon Johnson is facing a mess in Vietnam and internal dissent against the Vietnam War. Remember this, 67, late, late time and he's got the Cold War going on with the USSR. So I don't want you to think that the whole world's focused on this. People have other things going on. France is actually the one supplying most of the arms to Israel at this point. And so Israel has really good intelligence. And according to some of the memoirs I've read, some of that came from King Hussein. Hussein, his thinking was different than the other Arab leaders. I mean, he's gotta say, yeah, rah, rah, but on the other hand, he thinks that this won't go well for him. And he thinks if they invade Israel and it doesn't go as well as people think, he could lose his kingdom. He is one of the people that warned the Israelis that this is the prelude to a war. And so a lot been written about this time. There's a lot of back and forth, but at the end of the story, what effectively happens is about three days before the Egyptians are ready to say, let's invade, the Israelis strike first. And so uh, Moshe Dayan, who I told you last week is the second 
kid born in the first kibbutz in Israel, becomes a prominent general in this time, and he comes to fame at this time. And so Israel's calculation is that they cannot successfully defend their country if they are attacked first with all these armies literally right on their border. I'm not making an apologetic for Israel. Uh, I wanna try and give you different points of view here, but my point is that was their calculation, and they're right. I mean, that, that would have been quite difficult to do. And so they struck first. And so they struck, their air force struck the Syrian and Jordanian, and particularly the Egyptian air force caught them by surprise on the ground and almost completely destroyed them. And so the six day war, 1967, six day war only took six days because they wiped out the air support. What did they do then? So the next thing they did was they began to uh, secure their borders. And so they did take some territory. And I want you to see, so before, on the left, on June 5th, before the war begins, you see Israel in its uh, borders there. So after they attacked, Syria attacked. Syria had been, this is the Golan Heights. This was not Israel. This was Syria before 1967. And it is high ground. And the Syrians would shell the Israeli farmers down there. The Syrians had a plan to poison all the water in the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it was... They are dedicated to wiping out Israel. And so it was very, very difficult for Israel to uh, even settle this area up around the Sea of Galilee. So when the Syrians then invaded, so what Israel did was they struck the air forces. Well, then the ground forces come in and they begin to fight. They win the war now because it's not all the Arab armies versus Israel. Israel has air superiority. And so they win this battle in six days. So they drive the Syrians back and Israel takes the Golan Heights. They take the whole Sinai Peninsula. They literally drive the Egyptians all the way back into Egypt proper, if you will, back into Egypt. And they take this whole Sinai Peninsula, this area as a huge buffer zone in other words, no more Egyptian armies right on the border of Israel. It's not like they settled these areas. They just took these areas and held it and said, now I have a buffer zone. They did not intend to go into the West Bank. And in fact, Eshkol says to King Hussein, whom they have at least secretly, reasonable relationships, he said, look, you stay out of this war, I have no beef with you whatsoever. Long story, short version, Hussein calculates, I can't stay out of this war. I mean, if I stay out of this war, yes, my territory is safe, but somebody else is gonna be king after this war. And so he does send some troops in, and so Israel responds. Again, I'm not making an apologetic, I'm just telling you what happened. And Israel takes the whole West Bank area as well, all the way up to the Jordan River. This is some pictures, by the way, at the end of the Six-Day War. The Jews also took Jerusalem. I mean, when they took the West Bank, they took Jerusalem. That's the first time in history, I mean, since 
Herod built this 2,000 years earlier, that Israelis could pray at the Western Wall. That's a picture of the Western Wall. It looks exactly like that today. You can go pray there today. But that, the, the, the stories and the pictures of the soldiers finally getting to the Western Wall and being able to pray are just really emotional. It was emotional for them. So they took uh, Jerusalem and they took the whole West Bank. So that's uh, not a lot of detail on the Six-Day War, but that's what happened in the Six-Day War. So this is what Israel looked like after the Six-Day War in 67. And so you can see that they have the West Bank, they have the whole Sinai Peninsula down here, and they have the Golan Heights. And you still have Jordan, of course, the Israel. And this was even more humiliating to the Arabs. And you cannot, uh, you just cannot downplay how big a deal this was. I wanna pause here and explain something. We'll get to Israel's, bo Israel's borders today come out of this area. But the West Bank today is called occupied territory in most maps in the world. I mean, if you just go out on the web and you look at a map, most of them are gonna say occupied territory. Israel is occupying Palestine. And what they mean is Israel is occupying the West Bank. Well, needless to say, as of this six-day war, the people that lived there were actually under Israeli rule. They weren't really Jordanian citizens anymore because Jordan didn't control that area anymore, right? So they were a, quote, conquered people, if you will. And so they thought, you've occupied this land. Since Israel struck first in the six-day war, the world then and today, I mean, Israel had its supporters that said, come on, seriously, people? Of course they struck first. You guys were about to invade them three days later. You know, but in the eyes of the UN and today, you will see that Israel is the aggressor because they started the Six-Day War, and that's why they are occupiers of the West Bank. Does that make sense? So today, when you hear that the Zionists, which is what the Arab world still calls Israel, those nationalistic Jews who are, uh, want their own country and they're, they're evil Zionists, right? They invaded the West Bank and they are occupying the West Bank. And that's part of the reason that every year there are condemnations about war crimes against Israel for occupying this territory because they struck first. So I want you to at least understand why most of the world looks at Israel unfavorably in relation to the Palestinian question because they think that Israel has uh, occupied it. Now, you could rebut that and say, the UN offered that to be the Palestinian nation and the Arabs disagreed because they thought they could literally destroy Israel. what the UN do when they try to destroy Israel? Big fat nothing. Right? So, I mean, there's point counterpoint is all I'm trying to say. But if you wanna know why people in the world criticize Israel for the West Bank, it's because they consider it occupied territory because Israel struck first. Well, needless to say, if there was tension in the West Bank against Israel before the Six-Day War, got worse after the Six-Day War. So let me introduce to you the hero of the Palestinians, Yasser Arafat. Yasser, you see, you see his pictures all over the place in the West Bank today. He is a Palestinian hero. This is when the Palestinians start to get a bit of an identity. 
And, the, and he is responsible for it. As a leader, you have to admire what he was able to accomplish in the Arab world. So you get this group of people that lives in, I'm just gonna start calling it the West Bank, live in the West Bank. Now that Israel has conquered it, it's not like they're Jordanian anymore. Who are they? Well, don't know, right? They're subjects of the Israelis. So they basically develop an identity as we are the Palestinian people living in the Palestinian nation and we are occupied by the oppressor Israel. This is the fundamental narrative. And so Yasser Arafat works his way in the Arab world into being recognized as the spokesperson for the Palestinian people. This is when the Palestinian people actually begin to cohere and have some kind of unified identity. Because even now, he, the way he got in charge was beating out the other groups. There are all kinds of groups. His group is called Fatah, F-A-T-A-H. They're still around. Terrorist group, and they were terrorizing. Hamas was there then, terrorizing. And in fact, uh, later you'll see Fatah and Hamas duke it out to see who's gonna rule Palestine amongst, that's Muslim versus Muslim, Arab versus Arab. So this is a power struggle. He was very successful in convincing Nasser and after Nasser, Nasser died in 1970. So between 67 war and 73, he gets appointed by all of the Arabs as the official spokesperson. His organization, the Palestine Liberation Organization or the PLO still exists today, which is dedicated to the destruction of Israel, was acknowledged as being the representative of the Palestinian people. A little bit later in time, I'm skipping forward now, into the 90s, things change over time, but in, and we'll talk about this next time. He, the Palestinian Authority is established to be an actual government. Palestine Liberation Organization is a terrorist organization that's just gonna be the spokesman for the Palestinian people. The Palestinian Authority it becomes a government which today rules a great part of the West Bank. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. So Yasser Arafat is a pretty brilliant leader in the sense that he got the Arab nations to basically agree that he would be the spokesperson. He even later, a little bit later, uh, got them to declare that Palestine is its own country, no longer related to uh, Jordan and that it's its own country, it just happens to be occupied by the Israelis. And today, the world still says, man, we better help those Palestinians throw off the Israelis. Make sense? Okay, so Yasser Arafat becomes a big deal at this time. So, as we lead up to the 73 war, you have a change in leadership. This fella, Hafez al-Assad, Hafez, Hafez al-Assad rules Syria. His son, Bashar al-Assad, rules Syria today. Cut from the same cloth as his dad. And so Bashar al-Assad, or Hafez al-Assad, excuse me, is very militant, and the Syrians always have been, dedicated to destroying the state of Israel. They uh, obviously failed in 1967. A lot of their army was destroyed in 67, and they began rearming uh, because of, from the uh, Soviets. Jordan still has King Hussein, who has miraculously managed to ride this. For Hussein, it worked out pretty good. He got rid of the pesky Palestinians. And they were pesky because in 1970, 
So we're in between the 67 and 73 war. In 1970, the PLO came with its fighters and tried to overthrow Jordan to make Jordan their country. So Yasser Arafat and his guys decide to overthrow King Hussein. And the month of September of 1970, there was a bloody war and King Hussein's Jordanian army won. And they kicked the PLO out of Jordan. And anybody in the PLO got arrested and put away. So Yasser Arafat, flees to Lebanon, that bastion of stability. Unfortunately, the poor Lebanese people, that country hasn't been stable for a long time, and he didn't help. So what is he doing? He's saying, I represent the Palestinian people, I wanna destroy Israel, but I don't like living in the West Bank because you got all these Israelis around. I'll conquer Jordan, we'll be our own country. Fails, goes to Lebanon, I'll conquer Lebanon, has a little more success in Lebanon, and is able to attack Israel from Lebanon quite frequently. And so the PLO becomes its own power and King Hussein successfully defeats them in uh, 1970. Egypt, so you've got Assad in Damascus. In Egypt, you have one of the most brilliant statesmen of the 20th century. Anwar Sadat becomes president of Egypt in 1970. Anwar Sadat is a very forward-looking thinker and he realizes I mean, he doesn't like the Israelis either. And he's a devout Muslim, by the way. Most of these people are secular Muslims. He happens to be a devout Muslim. But he recognizes that this whole idea that Nasser had of all the Arabs being a big United State together and that they would all destroy Israel, all that had accomplished in 1948 and 1967 is the constant defeat of the Egyptian people. And so he basically comes in with a make Egypt great again platform. And he says, Egypt first, meaning, yeah, I'm an Arab and you're my brothers, but I am gonna help and do what's good for the Egyptian people. And he realized that the best thing for the Egyptian people is not to try to bear the brunt of trying to defeat Israel. He realizes that the best thing, the smartest thing to do is just accept it. The Jews are gonna be here. And if we quit attacking the Jews, this is what he thought, if we quit attacking the Jews, they are not gonna attack us. He wants peace with the Jews because it's better for his people. He's also playing the Soviets off, but he realizes that the Soviets haven't been good for the Egyptian people either. You've got all these Soviet advisors running around, you've got the USSR pouring money in, taking oil and other things out, He's like, look, I don't know who's our enemy here, the Jews or the Russians? In other words, you, you really have exploitation happening. This is the way the world works today, the way the world worked then. Anwar Sadat said enough of this stuff. The Jews at least aren't sucking my country dry, right? So he kicks the Russians out of Egypt. Enter Henry Kissinger, be there in just a second. And so basically he kicks the Russians out. He decides I'm gonna make peace. But you can't make peace with the Arab world until you restore your pride. Does that make sense? He knows that Hussein would make peace in a heartbeat with uh, Israel, because he just doesn't need the headache. The Palestinian organization is a pain to him. They've tried to take over his country. Pretty soon here, he's gonna expel the PLO also, because they start agitating against him, saying, you're not being militant enough against the Jews. And so for their own sake, they're not happy with the PLO. So he decides, 
long-term thinker, we're gonna make peace, but I can't make peace until I restore some territory, obviously. I mean, you got the Jews literally have taken the Sinai Peninsula. That's just embarrassing, right? And so he decides on a plan and he begins to skillfully, over three years, prepare a plan to where he can be in a position to negotiate with the Jews and restore Arab uh, pride. In the meantime, Golda Meir is the prime minister of Israel. She is a hard-nosed cookie. I mean, you read the memoirs of this time period. She did a really great job taking care of Israel and ticking off every other world leader in the world. And particularly, uh, also, uh, Henry Kissinger, I'll just skip forward to him. She is working with Kissinger and Nixon. And she says, you know that the Soviet Union is arming all the Arabs. And one of the things they're arming the Arabs with, by the way, since their air forces were destroyed in the 67 war, the Soviets are giving them SAM anti-aircraft missiles, which were causing the US problems as well. Do you remember the U-2 flight that was shot down, Gary Powers, etc.? You may not remember this history, but the US and the Soviets are having an arms race with each other. She goes to America and Nixon and Kissinger and says, Sure would be good if you guys supplied us because how's it gonna look if the Soviets destroy us and now they've expanded more? Kissinger is dying to get a foot in the Middle East. He's dying to kick the Russians out of the Middle East. And he says, you betcha. And they start arming Israel with the latest technology from America. And so Golda Meir negotiated that really, really well. So things are going well until the plan comes to fruition, and in 1973, six years after the 67 war, secretly and just skillfully, uh, Anwar Sadat has been working with the Syrian president to coordinate an invasion of Israel simultaneously. They figure that as powerful as Israel is, now that they've beefed up their anti-aircraft defenses, Israel can't successfully defend a two-pronged assault in the north on the Golan Heights, which they are occupying, right? And in the south in the Sinai Peninsula. And so in 1973, timed to be on the holiest day of the year for the Jews. And so it is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur goes all the way back to biblical times. It is the day of atonement for the Jews. On that day, Jews definitely don't work. They fast, they pray, and in the Bible, you have this process whereby they ask God for the forgiveness of the sins of Israel for the whole year. Holy, holy day. So you have very few soldiers on duty. Most of Israel's army is not a standing army. Today, they only have nine million people. Back then, they had far fewer than that. Most of the Israeli army are reservists who are called up, and they can call people up within three days. I mean, they're very fast. Nevertheless, they don't have very many people working, and they certainly don't have very many people on the borders. Sadat has lulled them into thinking over and over. He would come to the border and look like he was going to invade. They'd mobilize the reserves, and he'd just withdraw. And he'd come again, he's done this for three years. It's a brilliant strategy. Come again, look like, and they'd mobilize the reserves. 
he'd go back. You can't mobilize your civilian reserves just like that. It affects your economy, does a lot of things. So they got lulled into thinking, this guy's playing with us. They learned their lesson in 67. The Israelis got a little overconfident. So on Yom Kippur, October 6, 1973, in the south, I'm gonna show you what's happening in the north. This is the Sinai Peninsula, used to be Egyptian, now it's Israeli, and it's a buffer zone. They didn't settle it, they just wanted a buffer. So the Egyptian armies go pouring across the, uh, into the Sinai Peninsula and quickly overwhelm the Israeli forts there. And literally, the whole Sinai Peninsula is open. Sadat's pretty smart, though. He stops right here. Why does he stop there? Because that's as far as his anti-aircraft defenses can defend him. Make sense? Brilliant move. And he stops. And you think, well, you're not going to get your territory back by stopping. That's not his goal. He defeats the Israelis and overruns them, and then he stops. Had he gone any further, the Israeli aircraft would destroy his tanks and so forth, and his SAM missile sites couldn't reach them. But where he is, he's kind of impregnable. And so he defeats some of the Israel. First war that battle they've won in a long time, and then he stops. In the north, Syria, by the way, if you are a military buff, this Golan Heights tank battle is probably the biggest tank battle since World War II. I mean, it is an un, if you like details, uh, there's a good book called The Arab-Israeli Wars by Heim Herzog, goes into great detail here, but this was an unbelievable tank battle. So, this is the Golan Heights, used to be Syrian, six-day war, Israel conquered it, right, and held it, and it's great buffer. Now all their farmers and all these people back here, they're not getting shot by snipers, their kids aren't living in bunkers, they're not getting shelled anymore, works out great. But Syria on Yom Kippur invades and takes a ton of territory, literally overwhelms the uh, Israeli tank battalions here. Needless to say, the Israelis mobilize as quickly as they can, but they have gotten overconfident and it is touch and go. Probably the best, Moshe Dayan's written about this in his memoirs and it's good. Uh, there's some third parties, but honestly, I'll tell you, I think Kissinger's account of this 1973 war, probably the best I've read. Uh, he wrote a book called Crisis, The Anatomy of Two Foreign Policy Crises. Half of that book is about Vietnam, which by the way, that's all still going on at this time. And in fact, at this time, Watergate is happening. And if you remember, Nixon is holed up in San Clemente. He doesn't even know what's happening here, but Kissinger's kind of running this deal on his own. But his account of what happened minute by minute, conversation by conversation, is really brilliant of the 1973 war. But things are not going well for the Israelis. They have a real problem. They get their people mobilized, but they're losing tanks. Why? Because the Soviet Union has armed the Egyptians with way better equipment. Their problem is they can't replenish the tanks and they can't replenish the uh, ammunition. They need it desperately from the United States. Well, in the United States, you got a lot of politics going on. Defense Department doesn't want to give them that. It's like, oh, those Israelis, they're exaggerating. They're just trying to use us like they always do. 
tense relationship. That Golda Meir, she's tough-nosed, hard to argue with. Kissinger, on the other hand, says, no, I think they're actually in trouble and we cannot let these people fail. And so all the politicking goes on, but it, the short version of the story is the Israelis get what they need and through valiant efforts, they push the Syrians back. Now, as soon as things start going against the Syrians, they start, Assad calls up uh, Sadat and says, I hear your forces are just stopped. I got the whole Israeli army on me. Don't you remember the whole point of this deal was two of us attacking, they'd have to split their forces. You're just sitting there. And Sadat said, oh, I forgot to tell you, that's not actually my plan. I'm so sorry, Assad. And so Assad, they get their rear ends kicked. That's not very nice. But anyway, this army gets pushed all the way back to the point where uh, the Israelis have an open road to Damascus. And here's where I'm gonna say, I guess I may have a bias here, but I really do admire the Israelis for this. They could have taken Damascus. I mean, they're like 30 kilometers away from Damascus, the capital, and Diane says no, and they stop. And they realize they're already international pariahs because of the 67 war. But their fundamental goal is to protect their territory, not to get additional territory. And he realized if we go conquer the capital, then we, you know, it's like you break it, you own it. It's like, what are we gonna do with Syria? We don't want Syria. We just want Syria to quit attacking us. And so he wisely decides we're gonna withdraw. We're gonna keep the Golan Heights and they still have it today, but we are not taking any more territory in Syria. On the south, I'm gonna go back to this map and I'm gonna tell you how this plays out. They end up also deciding, we're gonna push the Egyptians back out of the peninsula. And so they get to be successful. And this place called Chinese Farm right here ends up that they're trying to get the Americans to stop the war. But then when the tide turns, they ask Kissinger, well, can we slow play this ceasefire? we'd actually like to take more territory before this is over. And, the, and so all of a sudden, the Soviet Union in the UN that's saying, hey, you know, let, boys are gonna be boys, let them fight it out. They're begging for a ceasefire because the Syrians have been pushed back and the Egyptians are in trouble. The Israelis do something that I don't think is very smart. They actually surround an entire Egyptian army. Now what are you gonna do with them? You know, and so this causes an international crisis. But at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, what Sadat managed to do was restore Arab pride. They had proved that they could defeat the Israel's, Israelis militarily. And so when you get the ceasefire that actually ends up happening a few days later, they begin to negotiate. And so now Sadat and the Arab world is all saying, man, we really, look what we did. You know, the Israelis are no longer gonna take us for granted. And he really did restore Arab pride. And then he sits down at the negotiating table and starts to negotiate for a long-term peace. And out of that negotiation comes basically uh, what this looks like today, or after 73. I'm gonna fast forward and take several years worth of negotiations together. Israel gives back the Sinai Peninsula completely to Israel or to Egypt. 
and Sadat's. See, we got all our territory back. Egypt recognizes Israel's right to exist, and they have a peace treaty. Hussein in Jordan is like, finally, I could not be the first guy to have peace, but he also makes a peace treaty and acknowledges Israel's right to exist. Needless to say, the people in the West Bank and the PLO are not happy. And next week, they're gonna cause a lot of trouble. But I want you to understand why that is the case. Syrians get nothing out of this, and they're just surly at this point because they don't get the Golan Heights back, and they kinda got the brunt of this deal. And so there's no love lost between the Syrians and the Egyptians kinda from this time forward. The Syrians continue to be uh, supported heavily by the Soviet Union, and to this day, Russia has huge presence in Syria. Not so much with Egypt. Egypt relationship with the US gets better and they actually elevate their status on the world stage. So in hindsight, Sadat did indeed do what he, he desired to do. He was assassinated for it, by the way. Uh, he was assassinated basically for making peace with Israel. But he accomplished what he intended and I, I wanna honor the guy's leadership in the sense that he basically improved the lives of the Egyptians and stopped that cycle of war. So, uh, and I think Henry Kissinger considers him one of the two best statesmen he ever worked with during that time period. And so that's kind of what you have today. Today, you have Jordan and Israel, Egypt and Israel, uh, basically at peace with one another. And that has been that way off and on with tensions, but that's fundamentally been that way since effectively 1973 and largely due to what Sadat is doing. Lebanon has always, uh, Hamas ends up in, or excuse me, Hezbollah ends up in Lebanon. PLO gets kicked out of Lebanon three times. They, they cause problems wherever they go. And Lebanon is still unstable. Syria is not unstable, but Syria is very hostile to Israel and does indeed have Soviet backing and now Iranian backing as well. But at this time, you can kind of see how the Arab world splits a little bit. And you see the beginning, I'm gonna talk about the Abraham Accords later, but this is the very, very beginning of the Arab world splitting from each other a little. And Egypt and Jordan come to terms with Israel's existence. Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, uh, Iran do not come to terms with Israel's existence. But this is basically what Israel looks like today and how it has looked territorially since 1973. So that war was huge for the future of Israel. And in our next lesson, I'll bring you all the way up to the present, but these two wars were significant for a lot of reasons and laid the groundwork for today. Questions? Okay, um, several questions about what people mean today, and you may wanna talk about this next week, mm -hmm. but what people mean today when they talk about going back to the 1967 borders, I think Biden mentioned that last week. Yes, so let's talk about that now because a two-state solution, and I just, I can't help but saying, that's kind of what the UN proposed in 1947, right? It was proposed again by the Israelis later, in, in, after this time period, uh, in later times, and was rejected. But to say to go back to the 67 borders is basically 
take the West Bank out. This is basically what it's talking about. Take, give the Golan Heights back. Uh, Egypt doesn't even want Gaza Strip. Gaza, nobody wants Gaza. And so this is the 1967 borders. Remember that little blue thin sliver? That's basically let the West Bank be Palestine, an Arab nation, and give the Golan Heights back to the Syrians. You'll see the Israelis resist this idea of going back to 67 borders because they don't consider their nation to be defensible. They'd have hostile tanks. Right now, you don't have tanks in the West Bank because Israel controls the West Bank, right? But if it were its own nation, you could literally get anti-aircraft missiles. You could be launching missiles at Tel Aviv that you couldn't possibly stop, right? And so that would be a nation that was hostile to them. You would have the Syrians who are hostile to them on the, on the heights in the Golan Heights. Egypt, Jordan, not currently belligerent to them. But when you call for the 67 border, you're getting back to before Israel struck first and took the West Bank. Do you see the significance of that from a moral dimension? Don't expect Israel to, to agree, Israeli leaders to agree, simply for the fact that they don't believe they can defend their country there. On the other hand, I don't think Israel's leaders, by and large, really are happy with the situation in the West Bank either. So it's kind of a difficult situation for them. But that's what they mean when they say go back to 67 borders. And the reason that an American president might say that particularly one who's uh, more, let's say, a little more amenable to the liberal causes is because of the view, well, Israel, you did strike first in 67, maybe you ought to withdraw, okay? So that's, you can at least understand why people would say that. Yes? Is ISIS in Syria on the border of the Golan? They used to be, in fact, let me show you there was a map. <laughs> this is like the best series ever. <laughs> Every slide has a map. Well, I'll just kind of show you where it is on here. No, they are not today, but they were. So I'm gonna erase this and I'm gonna show you. We actually go to where you can literally see uh, where they, ISIS was. ISIS used to be, we go to a mountain that's right here today on, on trips to Israel and you can see into Lebanon, you can see right down into Syria. Syria's about a mile away. There's a little village here called Kenitra. It was on one of our other maps. Uh, that's just, you can look right down onto Kenitra. Golan Heights hugely strategic. Uh, when we were there one year, ISIS was in that village. And the UN uh, observers were up there in a safe place with us looking down at ISIS. So ISIS did indeed control at one point this part of Syria. They no longer control that part of Syria. If you remember Assad, Bashar Assad, and with help from the Russians uh, basically fought against ISIS because ISIS was trying to take over his country too, right? And he was able to push ISIS back. 
And so this is all Syrian territory now, and there is peace on that border right now. There are not attacks going across that border right now. Good question. ISIS was there, they are not there today. Last week you said that the Jews purchased the land that they occupied. If that's the case, then why do people say that their land was taken from the Palestinians? Well, they, when they came between World War I and World War II, the Jews, this whole area, everything on this map that you're looking at was British mandate, meaning that nobody living there but Arabs of some kind or other, you know, Iraqis, Egyptians, Jordanians, whatever. And they were tribal. And so a sheik, a head of a tribe, would own this territory. And there was no Palestine. You know, there was no government there. Those people didn't think of themselves as a nation. They were tribes who were in this land. And so the Jews that emigrated there between World War I and World War II would pay a sheik and say, can I have this many acres? And they'd start a settlement there. That's not disputed. After World War II, when the UN unilaterally set up this area that we're looking at, right, as a Jewish state, and David Ben-Gurion said that's a Jewish state, now all of a sudden, those tribes were saying, hey, wait a minute, they're saying the Jews don't have to pay for land. Jews can come here and they can just settle wherever. And many of them fled here, here, and north as well, of course. And so they said, you took our homes. The UN, those Zionist Jews, took our territory. That's what they have problems with, not between World War I and World War II. All those problems of the Jews occupying the land came from World War II and the 67 war. So a little distinction there as to why they think the Jews were occupying their land. They're not talking about the Jews after World War I that purchased some land. So next week, are you, next week are you gonna speak about the Jews that are in settlements? Yes, in fact, I'm gonna tease you with that for a moment and tell you what does the West Bank look like today? So, Israel has a problem. They're occupying the West Bank. They got a lot of terrorists there. They got a lot of people there that are not terrorists there. I mean, there are just fine people living there too. I don't want you to feel like, oh my gosh, everybody that lives in the West Bank is a terrorist. That's not true at all. There are people there that just wanna live a good life. In fact, there are an awful lot of people in the West Bank that work in Israel right now. There are three Arab members of the Israeli parliament right now. They only have 120 members in their parliament. They have three of them are Arab political parties, right? So I'm just saying to you that it's not that this is, a, oh, they're bad people in Palestine. They're people that want to raise their family and have peace like you and me. They do have some elements that say, no, we are going to kill the Jews. I mean, there's terrorism there. So what Israel has done is they have divided the West Bank into zones of influence. And you'll hear zone A, zone B, and zone C. And so what they're doing today, and I'll kind of tell you a little bit more about this next time, is when you go into the West Bank, if it's a zone A, and on this map, zone A is all this light yellow colored, and you'll see this quite a bit. And in fact, I know there's a lot of green, which is Israeli uh, occupied or controlled, controlled territory. There are not that many people living there. The big uh, population centers are zone A. What is zone A? a town or an area that's in zone A, a village, a town, or whatever, in the West Bank has 
Palestinian government and Palestinian security. I'll give you a great example, Bethlehem is in the West Bank and when you go to Bethlehem, Israelis are warned, there's a big old sign before you go in that says if you're an Israeli citizen, it is against the law for you to go to Bethlehem because there's no Israeli security, no soldiers, no police, no nothing. The government's not Israeli, the laws are not the laws of Israel. It is completely self-governed by the Palestinian Authority, those people that live there. So that whole area in yellow is completely governed and controlled security-wise by the Palestinians. Zone B, there are areas and roads and certain places that the government is Palestinian. I mean, the city council, the mayor, they make their own laws. They're not the laws of Israel. They can be Sharia law if you want it to be, whatever you want your laws to be. The security is Israeli. In other words, they guarantee the security of those areas. So for example, when we are in Israel, we drive on a road and we drive all the way through the West Bank. We drive right by a lot of these places, but the road is zone B, meaning that road, Israeli soldiers can be there and will be there if necessary. But bottom line, they don't have anything to do with any of these villages around here. Zone C, is totally Israeli controlled. And that's areas where uh, Israel is the government, the people there are Israeli citizens, and Israel is the security, okay? And that's where the settlements are. And that's the issue. So I want you to know that the whole West Bank thing is a little bit more complicated than you would think. And it's actually has the basis for peace a little more than you would think. A great deal of the West Bank is controlled and security by the Palestinians themselves. So we'll talk a little bit more about this, but Israel's intent appears to be, I mean, depends on which prime minister you've got, right? As to how militant they are. But Israel in general realizes we gotta solve this West Bank problem. We don't wanna be fighting them. We don't want them to be fighting us. We can't just turn it over and say, do what you want. Feel free to launch rockets at us. On the other hand, we really don't, get anything out of being in charge of this area. So this whole idea of trying to turn authority over to the Palestinians, particularly in a peaceful way, is one of the ways that you see the possibility of peace. We'll talk more about that next time. So the West Bank's a little bit more to it than you might think. Where does the idea of apartheid come in? So I'll talk about this idea of apartheid I'll talk about uh, boycott, divest, and sanction, the BDS movement. We'll talk about a lot of things, but the people that are, are believe that Israel is occupying this territory and oppressing the Palestinians, and by the way, bad things have been done here by Israel, and bad things have been done here by the Palestinian people. There's, there is nobody whose hands are totally clean in this, all right? But the people who think that Israel has no right to be here, they conquered that land, they invaded it first, and they are oppressing these people, the reason they call it apartheid, which I'm just gonna be blunt here and just tell you, this isn't just my opinion, that's kind of an absurd thing to say. But I understand why they say it. They're saying basically, Israelis are a minority in the West Bank. There's 4.6 million, I'll give you the stats next week, 4.6 million Palestinians live in the West Bank. You know how many of them are Israelis? Yeah, no, not many. 
And so what the reason they say it's apartheid is you've got Israel ruling people and the majority of the people are not Israelis. Like in South Africa, you had the white uh, British derived settlers ruling the majority African people. So that's why they say apartheid. I have to be honest with you, that's more emotional than accurate. But there are real issues here about governance and we should talk about that, but calling it apartheid is probably not very helpful, all right? So this is the Israel uh, today and it comes from 73. In our next lesson, Yasser Arafat plays a big role and a lot of interesting things happen with Israel. And once you hit the 2000s, not very long ago, things take an interesting turn and the nature of the Middle East changes and alliances begin to shift. So we'll continue from 1973 all the way up to the present and kind of hopefully we'll understand the dynamics of this region today because they're very complicated today, but they're understandable. And I think it'll help us understand why people are doing what they're doing, okay? You guys are a great audience to absorb this much information or to ignore this much information. I don't know what you're actually doing, but anyway, seriously, next time we'll talk about the rest. Thanks.